listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. This week, we are discussing a recent book written by Catherine Turk, which analyzes the rise, wins and failures of NOW, or the National Organization for Women, the groundbreaking second wave feminist group. I can't wait, so let's get right into it. (laughs) Keith, set the scene for us a little bit to begin. Before the creation of NOW, what sort of life were women in America and the developed world living in? Well, just focusing on the United States. So if you go back to, say, the 1950s, women couldn't have their own credit cards. They couldn't take out mortgages. They were not allowed to enter marathon races. Hard to imagine. Yeah. They couldn't get into medical school or law school very easily. And there were also limits to the jobs which they were allowed to carry out in terms of being pilots, factory managers, etc. So this second wave of feminism took on this huge task of male supremacy. It's actually not just with this one organisation, the National Organisation of Women, but the mood of the times has changed. I can remember when I started my first job here in Australia after I finished my first PhD, we used to employ staff and advertise the staff and the Sydney Morning Herald in those days had pages given over to women's positions Mm. or classified as for men's positions. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of gingerly said, well, we'll have a co-ed column as well. Uh, So this is, uh, what, 1976. The Sydney Morning Herald was still advertising jobs and the human resources officers made the choice as to which column it went into, for women only, men only, or taking a risk with co-ed. Wow. So it was was a very different sort of world Mm. from what you're having now. You've grown up thinking that all of the battles have been won, et cetera, but you've no idea of the battles that had to be fought to get there. Now, what has intrigued me about this article, Catherine Turk teaches at the University of North Carolina, and she's looked at the importance of the National Organization of Women, which we can take for granted. It's It's been a great story. But one angle that has been identified by The Atlantic magazine is the whole problem of donation-driven activism. So instead of looking just specifically at the National Organization of Women, I'm particularly intrigued by the problems of donation-driven activism because I've been involved in that myself over the decades. And now with her case study, we can see there are certain limitations. The National Organization of Women began with a number of key players like Betty Friedan, and that was back in 1963. She wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique, which sold brilliantly. This was the beginning of the movement. It's very much grassroots. That's the key component here. It started out as a grassroots movement with people thinking globally and acting locally. That's the key factor. Mm. And then over a period of time, the nature of the group changed. And there's actually another player who needs to be identified at this point, a guy called Richard Vigory from Texas, who apparently is still alive. I've just checked him out on YouTube. He's still doing interviews. So he's a sprightly 90 years old. Good on him. There's hope for me yet. (laughs) (laughs) So his argument 
in terms of non-governmental organisations, NGOs, campaigning, be it on the issue of women or black civil liberties, whatever. He, of course, was from the extreme right, so he was talking about the libertarian point of view. So he's also critical of the Republican Party mm-hmm. for having too many lefties in it. So <laughs> you're dealing with a, a really hardline right-winger. Uh-huh. But he realised that the gatekeepers for access to the general public were the major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. He came up with a whole new way of communicating with people, which we now take for granted, but which were revolutionary at the time, called direct mail. Mm-hmm. So he would get people's names and addresses and then on behalf of his clients, mail out stuff to them. So he never actually sold those lists. He just simply rented them out for the purposes of a, a mailing campaign. So he began in a fairly small way half a century ago. He reckons he helped secure the election of Ronald Reagan that way. Certainly raised a lot of money. This was a completely novel approach to campaigning, mm. sending people letters. Yeah. And, of course, computers or word processors really in those days enabled you to personalise the letter. Mm-hmm. So you were getting a letter from Governor Reagan directly to you. Yeah. Hi, Keith. <laughs> exactly. Nice to, nice to speak to you. <laughs> exactly. All, all produced by word yeah. processors. Yeah. He revolutionised fundraising. Mm. And he did that on the right, but then other groups realised just how powerful this system would be. And so they then copied it as well. And the argument from Kathleen Turk in her book, or more likely in the the article, The Atlantic, is that as they raised this money, fundraising became a more centralised activity. And fundraising became the overall concern rather than local activism. Mm. So originally at the local level, with, say, the National Organisation of Women, Everybody would be doing things differently under the heading of National Organisation of Women, but they'd be campaigning for childcare or changes within schools or whatever. Mm. It'll be done locally. But then with the rise of direct mail marketing, things became much more centralised. Mm-hmm. Before direct mail marketing and this avalanche of money, people would spend a lot of their time volunteering. So the Betty Friedans of this world never became rich on their association with non-governmental organisations. Now, of course, non-governmental organisations can pay very large salaries. I think the average donor would be unaware of how much money the CEO of a big NGO is actually receiving. Mm -hmm. And they think it's going to help ordinary people, but it's actually paying for the Mercedes of the CEO or whatever. Yeah, it's really interesting now. There are websites that exist to check on a charity that you want to donate to to see whether it's a responsible company in that how much of the money it's receiving in donations is actually going to the work they say they're going to. And it's kind of sad because people donate to charity thinking that they're making a difference. But I think that's what her point is, is that, you know, you look at the days of now and the civil rights movement, it was grassroots, it was people physically getting involved in these movements Whereas now I can sit in my home in Sydney, see a horrible image of, you know, an animal being abused and I'm going to donate and I've done my part. There's this lack of grassroots movement. Do we need to go back to that? Is that kind of what she's arguing? Well, I don't think she's necessarily arguing that, but she certainly identified that as the problem. Mm. The, The local activism is in decline 
And instead, people, as you say, will simply write a check. They think they've done their bit to save the world. Mm. And so the nature of campaigning, therefore, has changed. I just find it intriguing the way that we've seen these challenges that in the very beginning, the organisation itself was broke, never paid big salaries. But later on, with the influx of direct mail marketing money, the money came to the centre. Mm. In the old days, if you have a series of local branches, you join your local branch and then what's called a capitation fee mm-hmm. would go from that local branch, if you are lucky, up to the national office or the state office. Right. Whereas now with direct mail marketing, you leap over that state office and you just deal directly with the general public mm. and you take the money in that way. So head offices become much larger, much more professional, and people paid you know, a livable wage. This is what I find intriguing and what she's identified with the National Organisation of Women has been the way in which a lot of the local activism has just simply died away and people just simply make out a cheque and they think they've they've done their bit for the cause rather than actually carrying a placard outside a particularly notorious employer or whatever. Yeah, picket line. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and today's episode is delving into the history of the group responsible for second wave feminism movement now, which has been examined in a recent book by Catherine Turk. Now, of course, we've just talked about the, you know, piece she wrote talking about, you know, the changes in how we kind of support movements. Looking back at now, the civil rights movement as well in the 60s, feels like they were the last two big grassroots movements. Have we seen anything similar since? We saw a bit of it in 1979 with the upset uh, or the uprising really of the the peace movement and looking particularly at the whole issue of intermediate nuclear forces and that resulted eventually into an agreement to ban them in Europe. So certainly the peace movement in the old days, you know, I'm talking now about 40 years for me, that's just like yesterday, but (laughs) for some people that's ancient history. Um, I wasn't born. You weren't born, no. (laughs) Uh, But that's certainly the peace movement. I think in those days, the anti-Vietnam war movement as well. So they certainly used to have large mass movements. And of course, people in those days had energy. Mm. Um, It's interesting, the whole issue of demographic change. What we saw in the 1960s in particular and 70s has been the, the rise of baby boomers. So Very few people were born in the 30s because of the Depression, then the early 40s because of World War II. And then in 1945, the war ended, the soldiers came home and made up for lost time. And so you have this whole generation of baby boomers. Yes. And by the time you get to the 1960s, these boomers are in their 20s or late teens and wanted to bring about major changes. And this, of course... The National Organization of Women tapped into that. The Civil Rights Movement tapped into that. Mm. So you had all this youthful energy. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at campaigning, certainly amongst the baby boomers, they're more concerned about superannuation rather than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Absolutely. So we've, we've seen that change taking place. Where we see the impact of demography now is in the Middle East. And it's interesting that we've had the so-called Arab Spring, which began in December 2010 with Mohamed Boussisi, this basically anonymous vegetable seller who set light to himself and then died in January 2011 and then triggered this revolution throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Now, what is interesting is that those of us who 
comment on the Middle East failed to predict the forthcoming Arab Spring. None of us saw it coming. Who did? It was a demographer mm-hmm. in the United States who just simply looked at the rising population of all these young people and years before the Arab Spring said, keep an eye on the Arab youth population. They're going to become very volatile once they reach around the age of 20. He was spot on. Yeah. He could detect something which the so-called experts on the Middle East failed yeah. <laughs> to be able to see. And he was, he's a demographer. Yeah. So demography is certainly important. I think that nowadays we have people who are obviously feeling passionate, but they don't have the energy to go out onto the streets. We're seeing it at the moment, of course, with some of the pro-Palestinian rallies that mm. are happening at the moment. But generally speaking, we're not getting that era of the big mass rallies that we had. The really biggest one, I think, of late would have been back in 2003. So that's, what, 20-odd years ago Mm. when Australia was part of the invasion of Iraq and people just were out in the streets warning against that invasion. Of course, they all turned out to be correct. The invasion was a disaster and how it led us into a war crime, as did Bush and Blair. So you had huge rallies, but a lot of people said, well, you know, I was out on the streets, I I did rally, but nothing came of it. Mm. Um, So I think there's a a weariness there that's involved. I would agree. That's how I feel. I have attended some marches, mainly in my capacity as a journalist, to report on them. I'm quite passionate about quite a lot of issues. I don't think I've ever really thought to join a march. To me, It feels like, you know, okay, let's look at the Palestinian rallies. Let's use Australia for an example, since we're here. I mean, what's come of them? The government hasn't changed its mind. The government doesn't even want to talk about it. They've picked their stance and they stick with it. So what's the point in, you know, taking time out of my afternoon of relaxing (laughs) to go and try and talk to the politicians who don't want to listen to me anyway? I do understand the reluctance. And it's the same with climate change. For me, I donate to a couple of charities every month and that just comes out of my bank account and it's with them. And I go, well, what else can I really do aside from turn my lights off and, you know, try and be green as much as possible? I wonder if it was a lack of technology in the 60s and the 70s where people couldn't come together on forums online so they have to go to the streets. You know, is it a change in how we actually live our lives that's led to this? Oh, certainly technology has changed things. Yeah. Including also fundraising. If you go back to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, mm. when Cambridge Analytica scraped data off Facebook pages, we're back to that direct mail marketing. Yeah. Yeah. So technology has assisted that. I could imagine 50 years ago that direct mail marketing would have required things like stencils, which you would never have no idea how to cut a stencil, <laughs> you youngsters. Uh, so you were using stencils. Yep. Then you get the invention of photocopiers, et cetera. Mm. But yes, now with fantastic information technology, I was recently involved with running a campaign to fund a women's refuge. And we asked, again, one of these big direct mail marketing companies to send out an appeal letter personalised dear Barbara, dear Mary, yep. to all the professional young people who lived on Sydney's North Shore line. Okay. So we could identify it all the way down to young lawyers, mm-hmm. young doctors, et cetera, mm-hmm. where they were living. Yeah. And we targeted them for the campaign wow. in the hope that they might identify with young women who are homeless. Mm. That's how sophisticated the direct mail marketing business has become. Mm. Let's turn back to Turk's book and and now, as in the group now, not right yes. this minute now. <laughs> um, 
what does she want us to take away from the history of now and, you know, her perspective on grassroots movements? Well, she's um, obviously worried that the grassroots movements are disappearing and they're being controlled by big centralised bureaucracies or the non-governmental organisations who are using direct mail marketing. And also that they focus on a few campaign points. This is also what I found intriguing, that with a localised campaign, you campaign on what matters locally to you. And so you can engage a local member of parliament or member of Congress, whatever, on a particular local issue. In her article, she talks about the way in which the national officers decided to go all in for what was called the Equal Rights Amendment Act. So under the US Constitution, you can bring about these big amendments to the Constitution. You know, we talk about the Second Amendment, for example, which is the right to bear arms. First Amendment is the right to free speech. And so there was a campaign to have a provision that women should be treated the equal of men. ERA, Equal Rights Amendment Act, Mm -hmm. which at the time seemed to be a good idea. The legislation from this era just sailed through Congress. There have been subsequent rallies where pretty well, I don't know about Mrs. Trump, but all other first ladies have gotten involved supporting the Equal Rights Amendment Act. But the period of endorsing that legislation has now disappeared. Mm -hmm. The Americans could not get agreement on amending the Constitution to say that women are the equal of men. And it was a campaign that began with great optimism, given the speed with which the initial legislation went through Congress. And so they went all in with that and, in a sense, took their eye off local activism and focused on the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment Act. And so they lost their focus from local activism, backed the ERA, which has been a failure, has not been still received enough ratifications at state level. And it triggered a reaction from conservative women Mm. uh, who were then aided by um, Ronald Reagan. Ironically, Mrs. Reagan, I think, is a supporter, was a supporter (laughs) of ERA, but her husband, who was president, certainly wasn't. Mm. And there are a number of industrial interests who obviously were opposed to women receiving equal pay and all this sort of thing. So the the article is also critical of the National Organisation of Women getting so absorbed into the Equal Rights Amendment Act campaign that they then forgot local activism. And so, yes, they still have a large number of members, but they're members who just simply write checks. They're not out on the streets with their placards campaigning on local issues. Mm. Well, a lot of lessons to be learned from the history of now. And, you know, if anything, I think the young generation still has a bit of energy. This generation coming through now... I'm hoping they're going to be the ones to change the world when it comes to climate change. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.